Hey guys, welcome to the Lifesaver podcast. That's Lifesaver with a hyphen and Savor with an O. Lifesaver is dedicated to appreciating life. I'm your host, Eric Victor Reed, and here on Lifesaver, we like to talk about life. We talk about ideas, perspectives, experiences, and even some wisdom about how to live with a sense of peace, freedom, and exhilaration. We look for life lessons and ways to love life. Please join me as we delve into the good stuff. We're speaking with my mother, Christine Mikulishek. For most of her life, she's been a professional sculptor and nomadic adventurer. We explore her life and life lessons over four episodes. This episode covers my mother's later and greater years, after the age of 40, when I finally leave the nest. She's definitely saved the best for last. With a newfound sense of freedom, she hones her skills as a master portraitist and spends numerous years in Italy studying marble carving. She'll learn to fly a plane. She'll take cross-country motorcycle trips. She'll hook up with an Alaskan sea captain and find paradise in a Mexican casita near the ocean. She'll even discover a love of home and family. This and much more on this episode of the Lifesaver Podcast. All right, so you're about uh, 40, 41, something like that. Yeah. You are on your own, and you got a whole life ahead of you. Right. What's most important to you at this time? Is it uh, just... Freedom. Owning my time. Freedom, kind of figuring out who you want to be, what you want to do, who you want to relate with, what kind of world you want to have for yourself, what kind of life you want to have for yourself. You know what I wanted more than anything? Peace. Yeah. One whole day yeah. of peace. Yeah. That's all I would... That's a treasure. I would long for it sometimes because life with Tom was exciting. You know what he used to say? Well, it's never boring. Mm-hmm. And all I longed for was peace yeah. at that point. Yeah. yeah. So you're you're basking in the peacefulness of yeah. owning and inhabiting your own life. Well, you know, that cabin was right on the beach. Right. And right. I'd walk down to that little beach there and there was a flat rock and I'd lay on the flat rock and listen to the, even if it was cold, I'd just bundle up and lay on that flat rock and listen to the water lapping on the shore. Mm-hmm. And this rhythm of it, it was just like bring my heart rate down, you know. Mm-hmm. And and, it, and so I spent a lot of time just doing that at first. I was because I was consciously recovering. Mm-hmm. I knew I was recovering from more stress than I could ever tolerate. I'm not good with stress, and <laughs> yeah. there was a lot of stress with Tom. So, so mm-hmm. this is um, roughly 1988, 89. So give us a big picture over the next three, four, five years, what's happening in your life? Well, then in, I think it was in April or May of the year. So it was only like three months after I Mm -hmm. split up with Tom that I met and became friends, started a friendship with a a man named Doug Pickering. And it's because, oh, one of the things I did, by the way, I didn't mention is I dreamed of flying Mm. because I had started taking flying lessons in Ashland at Mm -hmm. the airport. uh, And I hung out there and hopped a ride on a plane with anybody who offered because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was kind of, you know, there's ski bombs and I was an airport bum. <laughs> but, you know, flying is, is kind of expensive. So I'll tell you, every dime that I could, I was still selling sculptures, but, you know, that's not a steady income. So mm-hmm. I had this part-time job and, and anyway, every extra dime, my overhead was so low mm-hmm. that every dime I could could spare, 
I put into flying lessons and I finished my flying lessons. I soloed and during that period. And so through flying, I met, uh, I made some friends and one of them was a woman named Joy who invited me over for dinner one evening. And there was a, their best friend was there as this tall, good looking guy named Doug. Anyway, they sort of set me up. Uh, she and her husband set both of us up, I guess, but I don't yeah, know. Uh, Doug was um, quite a fellow. And, uh, yeah. Uh, he's, he's one of my favorite people. Yeah. Uh, I really liked him. Uh, but yeah, so he was a uh, kind of a swashbuckling uh, investment salesman. Um, he, he was, yeah. Uh, he would, he was a pilot, and so he'd fly up uh, yeah. north to people who worked in the oil fields and had nothing the else mines. to do with their money and yeah, the mines. mines up and, in um, British Columbia. Basically yeah. was telling them, hey, why don't you invest your money? Well, you're not doing anything with it. And he made a good living doing that. Yeah, and I was fortunate to fly up with him on a few of those trips. And so he let me, he had this beautiful uh, twin beach twin traveler plane. And he was a very experienced I don't know if you'd call him a bush pilot, but experienced pilot. He actually had a commercial ticket, but he said that would be like driving a bus as far as he was concerned. He just wanted to use his plane and his flying to discover. And yeah, he really did have a zest for life and mm-hmm. an uh, adventuresome spirit. So, But also uh, had the other side too, yeah. which is very yeah. responsible financially. Oh my gosh, yes. And, uh, and yes. Well, well to do. Yes. Um, yeah. And it had a lovely home. You know, I re- still remember his bathroom with the jacuzzi tub and the- yeah, right on the water. He was stable. <laughs> he, he was adventurous but stable. He was extremely <laughs> responsible. By the way, you know how he built that house. He had lived had a home on the other side of the island, so he was Canadian. But he preferred to live on San Juan Island in the states because he was disgusted with how socialistic Canada was becoming. Um, he was a real free, enterprising capitalist guy, and um, very opinionated about it. And we agreed, of course, about that stuff. So he had wanted to live in the sunshine, wanted mm. to live, build a place that was on the sunny side of the island, on the west side. And he loved the solitude out there, and so did I. So how does that develop, and how do you eventually get to uh, Connecticut? Oh, boy. So the thing that we had in common was flying. That's the, how we met. So we did a lot of flying trips. We flew lots of places, and I got to fly with him on these trips up north, which was a real revelation for me, seeing mm-hmm. He was Canadian, so it was all like BC, uh, the Yukon, Mm -hmm. Northwest Territories, and all the way across Hudson Bay and down into Toronto, uh, Ontario, which is where he was born and raised. That's quite an adventure. Yeah. And the first time I ever saw the East Coast was on one of those, at the end of one of those flying trips. He took me to New York and Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., and and, uh, then we flew home. And I got to do a lot of flying myself. I mean, I could fly with a licensed... I wasn't rated for a twin engine, but of course it was his plane, so I could fly it. I was not an accomplished pilot like him. He was an amazing pilot, actually. So Okay, so he had a motorcycle, and he wanted to go on motorcycle camping trips, and so did I. So we did a lot of them, like all the way across yeah, the country. More more adventure with, yeah. Doug, with Doug. Yeah, and yeah. I... And I got, so I was teaching classes, by the way, Mm -hmm. at this point. I was teaching sculpture classes, and they were quite quite successful. Um, So that was bringing in income. And I actually got some portrait commissions, and I've always loved to do portraits, but I'm increasingly frustrated. Mm -hmm. So I like to do portraits, but I knew, even though other people were saying, oh, you're so good, and Mm -hmm. you're professional, and you're a teacher, I knew what my blind spots were, Mm -hmm. and I was frustrated by I, again, it was the struggle to get better, to be able to do 
the level of work that I imagined in my head. But I, so I checked around, uh, went to the library probably. Anyway, I found out about art schools that offered training in portraiture. And my first choice, after looking at, I sent away for, I had brochures for like 10 different schools in the country. And um, the one that appealed to me most was Lyme Academy. And the reason is I didn't have to take a general rec degree course. I could just take portrait and figure sculpture Mm -hmm. and life drawing if I wanted. But mainly, I just wanted to study portrait sculpture with an accomplished portrait sculptor. Mm -hmm. And I found Elizabeth Chandler. I wrote a letter to her telling her that I was interested in taking some portrait classes. And I was hoping to come visit the school. But this was all very tentative stuff. And then where is she? Elizabeth Gordon Chandler was the founder of Lyme Academy. I'm sorry. And And where is that? In Lyme in Lyme, Connecticut. Okay. Yeah. So Doug and I planned a motorcycle trip. We, he had a conference to go to in uh, Winnipeg or somewhere along the way. Hmm. And so we got packed it up and took off on the motorcycle and went to his conference. And then we just kept going. I remember through Wisconsin because we got a lot of really good cheese there mm-hmm. and, and saw cheese factories and saw how it was made. And he was always really interested in stuff like that. Uh, oh, and just to paint a picture thing. of uh, Doug, uh, it, it has been said that he resembles Tom Selleck to some extent. Oh, yeah. So uh, he had... With m- white hair when mane I... Mane of white but, hair. Uh, but he had that kind of face was, and bearing. He was about six foot two, broad shoulders, narrow hips. I mean, he really was... And he wore a black leather jacket, of and course, he, you know, flight jacket. He had an easy smile. And, easy you smile. Know, and you know what very else... Very Tom Selleckish. You know what else he had when I first met him, I noticed, because I'm always very suspicious of men who are, have dashing good looks. <laughs> they look like movie stars because I expect that they're going to be shallow and maybe even cruel. Mm. But what first impressed me after I'd been around him for about an hour watching him speak is the little lines around his eyes. He had brown eyes and he had very kind eyes. Yep. And when he smiled, it was a it was a good-natured, easy smile. It, there was nothing cruel-looking in his face at all. And so I kind of trusted it. It took me a while, you know, after mm. years with Tom to really trust my heart with anyone. But I came to, so we just became really good friends. And then we so became, you're on yeah. all these adventures with an, yeah. an, an older Tom Selleck. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you're making your way east. Um, yeah. And it, you're... Uh, you're wanting to end up at Lyme Academy. We end up at Lyme Academy, yeah. yes. Was and that your intention? That was. Okay. Right. That was. We made it to Lyme Academy, at to Lyme, Connecticut, which is right on the sea. Uh, we went to Lyme Academy. We, I remember walking in one day, Baron Nagel, who became, became a good friend of mine, he's a good sculptor, um, was there. Nobody else was in the studio that day. I introduced myself, and he said, well, I think uh, Elizabeth is over at the, the school office, which was a different building, but I'll show you around the studio. So I was at the sculpture studio and he showed me around and I thought I just walked into heaven for me, you know, because it was beautiful work. Even the student work was better than I had seen. And one thing that set it apart is that it was very representational art. Yes. Yes. Uh, it, was, it was truly in the vein of beautiful representational 
uh, art. Right. Because the thing is, there's, you know, there's knowledge and, and a skill set that needs to be acquired to do your own, to execute your own vision. And if you want to do figurative work, which I always did, and portraits, there's a lot to learn. Yeah. And so what I loved about Lime Academy is it looked in the brochure, it looked like a place where I wouldn't have to waste time on mm-hmm. peripheral stuff. Right. They were just focused. They were just focused on doing accurate portraits. And it was like nine hours with three, three hour sessions a week for six weeks with the same portrait subject. Mm-hmm. That gives you time to really get it right. right. And um, and that's the kind of thing I knew I needed. Yeah. So my plan originally, so anyway, we went there, we looked it over, I met Elizabeth Gordon Chandler, and we stayed overnight and went back the next day. And by that time, I was just absolutely hooked. I knew that this was it. Oh, and I, by the way, I walk in the room and there's a, a skeleton hanging there. You know, mm-hmm. and these work stands that rolled around, you know, like my work stands mm-hmm. that you're so used to. I had never seen any like that mm-hmm. before. And and this plastilina from Italy, this green, soft green plastilina, mm-hmm. it was just like I said, for me, it was looked like heaven because it was everything I wanted to get my hands, my head into. I knew I wanted to go there. And from the time I left there, I was completely focused on finding a way to go there. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting a scholarship that covered most of the tuition, but but I had to find a way to pay my expenses uh, for the first semester. I was going for one semester was the plan. And just I to, ended up staying for two years. So. Just to place us in time, I remember you guys stopping back on the way. I would, had been in college already a couple of years yeah. at University of Chicago, yeah. and you guys stopped in on the way back on that motorcycle trip. That was roughly somewhere like 1990, 1991 or something like that. It was 91. Okay. When we first went to check it out, it was in like, I'm thinking September, either August or September of 1990. And then I actually started at Lyme Academy in January of 91. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're there for a couple of years. And that was a turning point in my life. Exactly. It was a huge, uh, it was like advanced. Yeah. I mean, what you'd been doing before was good, but then that training, that intensive training with those incredible teachers, they gave you a confidence I think, in being able to execute. Yeah, that's um, well said, yeah. That you hadn't had before. You had done really good work before, but I don't think you had that advanced kind of level of mentality of like, whatever I need to do, I I can do it because I know I have the absolute skills to do it now. So I had a knack for portraiture. I knew I could feel that. And I'd done a lot of portraits, but in sculpture, I always had to struggle and it was you know, just like overwork. So one of the other things I saw on our visit, first visit to Lime Academy in the sculpture studio, on one side on a pedestal was a bronze head that Elizabeth had done. And when I saw that and the softness of the hair and the fact that she treated things like hair and the sweater or whatever the person was wearing, the way she treated it with grace, but not much detail, mm-hmm. just enough to, it was like she didn't distract you from the feeling and the features, you know, the, the likeness and the feeling of the person mm-hmm. by doing too much with the details. details yeah. And I understood looking at that, that everything I needed to learn she could help me with. Mm -hmm. And that's how I've learned everything, by the way, in art, is I find somebody who does work that I admire, that I aspire to, and I go study with them. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, so that's why I went to Lime Academy. I had to go, I had to find a way to go there, and I finally did, so. 
Yeah, I think that was a super important part of your life. It was super important. And I didn't even know about Dean Keller and learning life drawing and learning anatomy in the anatomy classes. Anatomy was so crucial to that confidence. of Confidence. You know exactly what's going on. You're talking about, well, I know where I want to go. Well, I think the other part of that is before it was a bit of a mystery if you could get there. Exactly. Um, But after Lyme Academy, it wasn't a mystery if you're going to get there. You know you're going to get there. I think Um, that's that's right. You don't know how long it's going to take or whatever, but you absolutely know the process for getting there. Right. And so sometimes when I saw that after I took that course, if I saw that something wasn't right, I just cut it off and do it over. Mm -hmm. And people go, oh, but it was so nice. I said, but it wasn't right. Right. And everything, you know, I learned so much from this first study of the ear or the nose or whatever that I can, I can do it back right in five minutes. And, and I was not afraid to cut off a whole face and redo it. And and that's really a professional level of um, confidence. It's not a mystery. It's It's not a mystery. You you get in the trenches and you dig and you know the process, You, you know what the stages are going to be. And you just go through those stages. Right. And you and then you edit. And yeah, so exactly. I never expect my first attempt to be right on the yeah, mark. That's part of the process. I bag it. I come <laughs> back. And then I'm looking at it with the most critical eye on the planet, by yeah. the way. I have much higher standards than my clients. And I look at it and I say, oh, well, that's what's wrong with it. You know, but I know how to fix things. Right. That's the great thing about the 10,000 hours mastery thing is you learn how to fix things. Instead of chasing your tail and fixing the wrong things, thing you look for and that really and also that, the right just thing. that professional kind of mindset oh yeah whether you're a plumber or a contractor building houses or anything you know it's that you know idea that i've been through this process i know exactly what right. the nuts and bolts of this thing are i yeah. know how to get there yeah and so i don't have too much expectations for the house looking like a finished house when we're still laying the foundation right you don't worry about you don't worry about pretty so here's the thing you talk about there's no more mystery so a lot of people think that art is this intuitive totally this you know intuitive talent driven or talent enabled creative process like most creative processes sculpture and the best painting i believe too there's a system Mm-hmm. to it, to getting it right mm-hmm. and getting it as good as it can be. I mean, there is plenty of the intuitive, sure. yeah. you know, flowing, but all be- beautiful stuff. But all of that beautiful, intuitive, creative stuff goes is the frosting on the cake. And you have to have the solid, the thing underneath all of the beautiful hair and the whatever, and the pretty ear, you know, you have to have the what's underneath it right. Yeah. And and I learned a system in the case of figures and portraits for getting, making sure that stuff is right. Mm-hmm. And before that, I would go to the details first because that was the juicy mm-hmm. stuff for me. And so I found out, well, you can wait, waste a lifetime yeah. getting perfect details on a bad, on the wrong shaped skull, for example. <laughs> and so that's why in my workshops, I've always focused on the basics. That get the shape of the skull right, get the proportions of the figure right. Yeah, and they, they carry the metaphor of building a house. Um, they talk about good bones in a house. Well, yeah. Literally, you want <laughs> to understand right. the, the figure sculpture at the level of the bones right. first, and then the muscles. It's just like, it, it very much is like building a house. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and once you have that professional kind of attitude of, I have this process and I know it works, what I found with writing, for example, was that I never had writer's block again, hmm. uh, because there's always some part of the process that I know that I can step into and start engaging in hmm. to get things moving in the right direction, yeah. whether it's editing or whatever, just spewing ideas on the page or whatever. And similarly with you, you, you can take it back to, why am I stuck here? I'm stuck because, oh, the proportion on that arm is wrong. You know, the bone is wrong or the the muscles are wrong or something. It's something you can check. So you're not, right, exactly. <laughs> you can check. And as a professional, you, you know that that's all it takes and you will be able to shovel your way out of it. Right. Lots of times, even though people thought I was a talented artist and teacher, I felt like mm-hmm. all too much of the time, like I was fumbling around in the dark, hoping it worked out. Right. And what Lime Academy did in a nutshell is it turned the lights on. Yeah. The room was brightly lit from then on. Yeah. It was the most one of the most exciting times in my life when I was there. In fact, Dean Keller said once you could feel the electricity in the room because at that time, Lime Academy did not give, it gave some of the best figurative training anywhere, Hmm. but it did not grant degrees. So the only people who went there were purists, Mm -hmm. people who just wanted to become great, great painters, learn the skill set, learn everything they could to enable their vision to be realized. And the same with the sculpture students, you know, Mm -hmm. we were just on fire and all different ages. You know, it wasn't just a bunch of young kids in an art department at college. Mm. It was, there were people older than me. I was, so I was like in the middle. I was 42, maybe 42, 43. And I I was kind of in the middle. I mean, there were people who were in their 60s and probably, oh, and there was the orthopedic surgeon, Wayne Southwick. He, he's the one who developed the hip replacement surgery that everybody gets now. (laughs) Way back when, he was a student there because he loved sculpture. And that's how I found out about Pietrasanta was Wayne Southwick and Dean Keller. Yeah. So that is actually where I wanted to head towards next um, is Italy uh, Mm. and carving marble in Pietrasanta. Well, I should mention there was another big change in my life that happened, a very sad one. So Doug came out during Easter to visit me and decided to stay. At the end of the second year... Doug was not feeling well, and he decided he wanted to move back to his home, mm-hmm. uh, San Juan Island. And so, and it broke my heart because I really wanted to stay. And I didn't know if I'd, I always felt like I would come back, actually. So anyway, I left. We left. We packed up everything and came back to San Juan Island. And then arrived back home in January of 1993, and he was not, he didn't feel good. And he became increasingly more tired and pale, but, you know, benign symptoms, right? Well, anyway, long story short, because it was shockingly short time, he was misdiagnosed as having giardia and anemia and different things. And finally, he was correctly diagnosed in the following October with acute myelogenous leukemia, AML, which... For men his age, it almost always strikes men between 58 and 63 years old for some reason. And um, without exception, they're always gone within a year. And so actually less than a month after he was diagnosed, he was he passed away. Yeah, um, yeah that's quite a loss. Um, so that sort of knocked me flat. But, you know, he said to me in the few weeks that we had, we had lots of golden moments. We just sat together, you know, and I couldn't speak because I was in shock. And he did speak and he said some wise things that I needed to have in my head later. He said, don't, oh, one thing he said was, don't let this, I hope this doesn't cause you to lose too much life. 
all this. And the other thing he said to me was, as soon as you can, you need to go do that. Because what we were planning to do was go live in Italy. Mm-hmm. I had heard about Pietrasanta, and we, when we, he was diagnosed with leukemia, we were actually shopping for airline tickets mm-hmm. to leave by Christmas, mm-hmm. to go and live there for a couple of years, to, or however long it took to learn, so I could learn marble carving. Because he was totally, he wanted me to go to Europe. He'd been there many times and mm-hmm. loved it. We were planning on doing that. And then, so he said, as soon as you can, you need to go do that. Go live in Italy, learn marble carving. And the other thing he said was, you have your art, you'll be okay. And I was. But it took my breath away from me. Yeah. How long did it take you to go to to Italy? So March, so he died November 21st, 1993. And I still get choked up. And then I, I had to take care of some estate stuff because I was executor and sort of settle the dust. And I, I did go back. I flew flew back to Chicago. First thing I did was I flew back and visited you. Oh, at that time, I was working in Morningstar. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, living downtown Chicago with, right. uh, with Tanya, living the, the city life. Yep. Then it was March 9th. I actually flew into uh, Charles de Gaulle in Paris. And uh, 1994. 1994, yeah. March 9th, okay. 1994, yeah. Okay. So it was, you know, a couple months. So you get to Italy, you make your way to Pietrasanta, <laughs> tons of history there from yeah. Michelangelo to yeah. whatever, but um, but you don't speak Italian. I, I took a crash course in Friday Harbor at the local <laughs> junior college, and so I knew I had about 15 words of Italian, you know. I knew how to say ciao, yeah. <laughs> buongiorno. It's got to be a, you know, a hard experience, but one that you yeah. you really wanted to undertake. Yeah, and you know, uh, it's interesting that I had such a strong reason for going, and, and it was to do with my work. And people have said, oh, I always dreamed of living, going to Italy or living in Italy or, you know, everybody wants to go touring around Italy. I never did. I really did not have that dream. But when I found out about a place where I could, when I found out about the quality of work they're doing, the carvers, master carvers of the world are in Pietrasanta and Carrara. So I knew these people who knew those people, who knew the studios, who knew the names of the studios, Wayne Southwick and Dean Keller. And other people I met. Oh, and I met Bruno Lucchese, mm-hmm. famous sculptor, whose work I knew from books, several books of, about his work. And I met him, I knew him, in at Lyme Academy I met him. And then, of course, he lived in Pietrasanta. So that's why I went. And I wasn't afraid. But then on the other hand, I hasten to add that I had never lived in a foreign country before. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things I learned is you can only do that if you're not afraid of looking stupid, you know, Cause, <laughs> because if you don't know the language, you're just going to look stupid all the time. Mm-hmm. So I have a great, by the way, I have a great uh, compassion and sympathy for people who come to America from other countries mm-hmm. and they speak English poorly. And some people think they're stupid and I think they're brave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went through that experience. The first few days were hard. I remember sitting on my... Did you, I'm sorry, but did yeah. you go straight to Piazza Santa? I did. Okay. That was your goal. Yeah. You wanted to get In there. fact, it's more specific than that. I had a piece of paper that, sa- that said the name Hotel Italia and the address and the name of the fellow who owned it, who loved artists. He was an artist himself. Mm-hmm. And he uh, spoke English. He was Italian, spoke English. And it was right by the Piazza del Duomo. 
in Pietrasanta. And, and so I had all these instructions and they told me all about him. Wayne Southwick told me all about him and the play. And I'd be, it'd be like finding a family and a home there in Pietrasanta, not to worry. One reason why I was so brave. And I got there and I found the place and there were no lights on. And this was late at night, like 10 mm-hmm. o'clock at night, 9.30, 10 at night, when I got off the train in Pietrasanta with my little suitcase and my piece of paper. And I found it and the lights were off and there was no answer at the door. And I thought, oops. <laughs> and so I saw lights. Uh, Had you been in phone contact with him? No. Okay. So you just showed up. Right. Well, they said you just, it doesn't <laughs> matter when you arrive, yeah. they will welcome you with open well, arms right, and right. and they prepare meals there. I mean, it's all good, you know? Yeah. So I thought I had it all covered. And so there I am, dark and rainy night, <laughs> truly dark and rainy night. And so I saw lights, dim lights. It was a rainy dark, you know, the winter in Pietrasanta is not. Yeah. I saw lights. So I walked towards the light. I walked up into the piazza and I saw one bar open with lights on. And so with my few little words, I went in and there was a woman. She asked if she could help me. And it was, of course, she didn't speak English. So with my little few little words of Italian, I showed her the note and I said, Hotel Italia? And she said, Accuso, closed. I understood Cuso. And I said, Cuso, per l'ora? I didn't know anything about, you know, my words were few. And that means because of the hour, like it's too late. And she said, no, 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 no. Wagged her finger at me and said, no, no, Cuso, Cuso. And then there was a pause and she said, bancarotto. And it took me a minute, but I figured that meant bankrupt. Yeah, Yeah, done. And then she said, che un hotel, un pension, hotel Pelad, Palagi. And she motioned and said in the direction that it was. And so I went in that direction. And one of those sleazy looking guys who was sitting in front of the bar followed me. I'm a single woman with a little suitcase. And I saw the sign for Hotel Palagi across the street. And he caught up to me and tried to grab my suitcase. And he was saying, I want to carry, I will help you. Mm-hmm. I will help you. I let me carry this for you. And I, no, no, no. So there we are, dark and rainy night, and I'm fighting with this guy to hang on to my suitcase. And I, no, no, I will carry it. And so then anyway, I walk into Hotel Palagi. Well, first of all, I rang the bell. There was no one at the counter. I thought, oh, no. And this guy is like right there trying to take my suitcase. And finally, this elderly man with white hair, Renzo, shows up at the counter. And he saw me, and he and he pushed a buzzer. And the guy followed me in and I went up to the counter and my life was saved from then on. But then he said, he said, is he with you? And I said, no, 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 no. So I got a room. So was that guy actually trying to steal your suitcase or? Uh, Probably. He would, if I'd let go of it, he would have taken it. But also, so here's the kicker. Was he trying to help you or is he trying? No, no, he wasn't trying to help me because I know this because here's the thing. When I said, no, no, I never saw him before as well as I could in Italian, my little Italian. And Renzo understood. He understood me. He understood. At that point, he mm-hmm. understood my situation. Yeah. And I I said, no, he's. I don't want him. He's following me. And Renzo said, told him to go away. And you know what the guy said? In Italian, which I didn't understand, but Renzo told me later what, what it was. Mm-hmm. The man was protesting something in Italian. And he was saying that I owed him money for him carrying my luggage oh, for right. me. Okay. Right. So he was trying to do that deal. Yeah. Right. So then Renzo told me in his little bit of English that he had, which wasn't much, that what the guy was trying said, he said he, that I owe him money. And I said, no, no. Mm-hmm. And he could tell by my face. You know what I did? I put both hands on my suitcase and I went like this, that like, no, he was like, 
you know, trying to, and Renzo got it right away, and he picked up the phone and told the guy he was calling the police. The guy was gone like a shot. So anyway, that was my first night in Beatrice Santa. At least I had a, a warm room, a bed. Next morning, I woke up in Italy. Well, that's excellent. That's how long, roughly, do you stay in Italy that first for that first period? Oh, so the first period, I had bought a ninety-day round-trip ticket. Oh, okay. Because I wanted to try it out and see if it was going to work out for me. I didn't know if I would like it. I'd never lived in a foreign country before. Um, I didn't know if I would even find a way to learn to carve marble because I didn't have any setup for that. Mm-hmm. I had, and they told me that I had to find a studio where I could work. So there were a lot of unknowns at that point. I didn't know if I'd be able to afford to mm-hmm. stay because I didn't know what the cost of living was going to be. I just didn't know how things would work out. After all, first time in a foreign country, right? So three, three months. <laughs> so I gave it three months okay. to find out if I wanted to stay. And it took me about a week and a half to know that I wanted to stay forever. Okay. So <laughs> right. you, you found your family, your, your, your marble carv- carving artist family. And one thing I want to add, even though I didn't know the language very well, there was something about the lifestyle, which is not for everyone perhaps, but the feeling and the priorities of the culture there. Mm. I felt like, and you know I'm not a reincarnation-believing person, but if I believed in former lives, you know, I would have, it felt like I lived there before. But it was that comfortable. It fit like an old shoe, like an old glove. It, Even though I was bad with the language and, you know, there were all these challenges, it just, there was something about, I think, but I think part of it is everywhere you looked, there was grace and beauty because Mm -hmm. that is the style of their culture. Right. It's not harsh, stark, ugly. Do you fly back to the States after 90 days? Yep. And then do you head straight back to Italy? No. What I did, I went back to the... I had things to, that I had to arrange. Okay. So I went back to San Juan Island, mm-hmm. and I put all my personal stuff in storage stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I found a nice couple with a, actually one child to lease the place for a couple of years. The, the White Point House. And so you get that set up. How long does that process take before you head back to Italy? I probably stayed for a couple of months, mm-hmm. and then I was back. Because I remember okay. going back to Italy, and the weather was totally different. It was like a Turkish steam right. bath in September yeah. in Pietrasanta. Um, so when you go back, it's a one-way ticket? Yes. Okay. One-way ticket. So Pietrasanta, a little background, is like a, an international mecca for sculptors. Mm-hmm. Sculptors from all over go there. How long do you stay there before you go back to the States? After I went back? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think it was two years. A couple years. Uh, yeah. The first time. Yeah, so a couple years, and then you came back to the States. And I came back for, I think I came back for a month around Christmas time, because by that time I realized that in the summer it was like a Turkish steam bath, and in the winter it was, you know, the stone, this, everything is stone mm-hmm. there, and the stone just, just pumps out cold. Yeah. And I, my feet have never been so cold anywhere as they were over there. And so yeah. I just needed, I usually needed a break. The other thing too, by the way, which is one of the reasons I eventually left Italy, is family is everything in the Italian culture. And I had friends who were very good to me. I had keys to the kingdom. You know, it was everything more than I dreamed possible in Italy, except for one thing. When it came to holidays and stuff, friends never meant to exclude me, but I didn't have family there. Mm-hmm. And family is everything. And it's not like anybody excluded me. It's just that I wasn't part of a family. Mm-hmm. So so it was pretty lonely. I was pretty lonely sometimes because I didn't have a partner there. Yeah. So, oh. You've been in Italy for two years. And then oh, yeah. you come back to the States. Yeah. What what roughly happens? I was only back for a month or so. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you just get your bearings or whatever and just kind of, and then you go back to Italy for how long? It's probably a year. 
Um, I think I came back again the following Christmas. And so when does that end? When do you stop going to Italy? Um, so uh, let's see, where are we now? I went over in 94, so I think it was 98 I met Paul. Okay. I, I was back, actually, I met Paul at Rush Harbor. Right. And I think it was in January of 98. Right. So it was just about four years. Yeah. So talk about the time that you were pretty steadily in Italy. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'll just sum up how it unfolded. Um, so I found I found the Hotel Pelagi and I had a room. And the people at the desk were very nice. And the owner's daughter, Katia, spoke some English. She she gave me a map of all the carving studios in the area. Hmm. Right in town at that time, Pietrasanta literally had two or three carving studios on most blocks, right down in the old part, well, all over town, but especially in, near the piazza in the downtown. Again, I didn't speak much Italian, but I set out to l- look at them until I found the one that was doing the kind of work that I knew I wanted to learn from. And I had been told that what you do is find a a studio you want to work with, and then they give you a carving stand and an airline, basically, for your pneumatic hammer, Mm. air hammer, and you pay them a monthly rent, and they help you with you, show you how to do it. That's how you learn. So I started looking in at the carving studios and I found, it was amazing. I found everything from an outdoor place with the biggest lathe I've ever seen that literally turned columns in marble. Little studios where they just turned out trinkets, you know, small, like small reproductions of the David and stuff for tourist trade. In many of these places, I saw stranieri or people like me. Now I saw sculptors, people from other countries who were paying to, you know, for their space and airline to to car. And I learned more about how they're made, that they have a plaster cast of a sculpture and they have a method for using big calipers to reproduce it in marble. And so then I, as I looked at more and more places, I realized that some of them had very poor plaster casts and some of them had very good plaster casts. And I thought, well, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So then I, in about my third day there, after I'd, you know, was completely exhausted one night, crying, wondering if I should go home. But of course I didn't. I was just so tired Mm -hmm. and dealing. And I found out, you know, I understand why little kids are so tired at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, because they're struggling to understand what people are saying all day long. They watch every facial expression, every body gesture, every move they make to try and figure out what the heck they're saying. I was tired, but I slept well at night. And went back and, you know, pounded the pavement the next day. And about the third day, I think, I was in a uh, a different section that is Porta Luca section of Pietrasanta. And I came across a big marble. I could tell it was a big marble carving studio. It had a big two-story building with double gates at both ends. Mm-hmm. And I heard lots of air hammers going inside, lots of busyness. But I found that the gate was not, uh, I couldn't go in the gate. And then someone went through the gate and I basically slept in (laughs) behind them and and just looked around. And the work was amazing. They were at that time, they had two-story scaffolding doing a full-size reproduction of the David, which Mm. is 17 feet Mm. tall. And so there's guys on both levels of the scaffolding working on, on the marble. And so I just stood there with my jaw dropped, you know, watching for a while and some people, of course, came by and asked if they could help me in Italian. Nobody spoke English there. Mm. And I just smiled and did my best. And I just wanted to stay there. <laughs> so I realized, having already looked at 15 or 16 or 25 other carving studios, I knew that's where I wanted to work. Mm. So I asked who the 
manager was mm-hmm. uh, who I should talk to and and they said oh Franco uh Franco Trevietti but he's not here right now I went right back to my room at Hotel Palagi and I composed a letter with my dictionary mm-hmm. literal translation <laughs> which I still have by the way I mean it was awful but it got the point across and I mm-hmm. introduced myself and I put photos some of those excellent black and white photos I have of my work with it in a manila envelope and I went back the next day and uh met Franco and I just gave him the envelope because yeah, I couldn't say much, but um, but in it, it expressed, you know, I introduced myself, told him what I wanted, and what I wanted was not for them to teach me, but to just be able to stay and watch. Mm-hmm. Because I've ha- always, all my life, I, if I watch people who are really good at something long enough, I will learn mm-hmm. a great deal about how to do it. I guess that's from following my dad around when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> He was very kind. He read it. When he was reading my letter, the corner of his mouth kind of kind of did this, twitched, you know, because <laughs> it was really bad Italian. But he got the idea, and I did name drop a little bit, uh, Walker Hancock, who they carved some of his work into marble, and I was friends with Walker. So he starts looking through my photographs, and he's smiling and nodding, and then the other carvers come over. They see, because the Italian men, if something's going on, they're the biggest gossips in the world. You know, they got to gather around and see what's going on. So they started coming over, and they were passing the photos around, and they're all making good sounds, you know, like, mm, mm-hmm. And Franco himself was nodding and smiling, looking at my photos. And he had, he's a tall man with blue eyes, unusual for Italians in that part of the country. And so then a few minutes passed and he reread my letter and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, si, va bene. I wasn't even sure what va bene meant, but I know I knew that si meant yes. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was okay. Va bene means okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I thanked him, thanked him profusely. And that was the beginning. I got to go. I went there every day for most of the three months that I was there. Mm-hmm. I went there every day and watched them work. And they became friends of mine. They taught me Italian. <laughs> and they taught me how to order pizza at the local place and they'd take me to lunch with them you know and they treated me like their sister the artigiani they are master carvers of the world so franco took me upstairs to look at his plaster cast collection and this was this was one of the most important things about my start in carving there so he has i found out over time what is considered the best collection of plaster casts for reproduction carving in Italy hmm. because he's bought they have second and third you know about generations of mm-hmm. molds and castings right mm-hmm. Well, he has more first-generation plaster casts, but that means because the Vatican, who owns most of the, these, like Michelangelo, mm-hmm. the Pietà, David, they pay mold makers to make a mold one time, mm-hmm. and they sell a limited number of mm-hmm. casts from it. Those are first-generation casts, and Franco has more than anybody. As a result of that, he has the best carvers, too, because they, the really mm-hmm. highly skilled artistic carvers want to work in the best shop with the best commissions, and he basically maintains his studio by getting commissions from all over the world. They've done reproductions of Michelangelo's work for Australia, Japan, all over Europe. And he's a delightful man and became a good friend and taught me how to select marble because he take me with him sometimes when he's going up to the quarries in mm-hmm. Carrara mm-hmm. in his ape truck. You know what that is? It's a three-wheeled little thing with a little tiny truck bed in the back and yeah. it probably gets about 105 miles to the gallon, mm-hmm. you know. But they're all over the place in Pietrasanta. And uh, so we go up early in the morning and he'd pick out, look for the stones that he needed for 
for his commissions. So that was the beginning. But I couldn't carve there because it's a commercial, busy commercial studio. He sent me to talk to a friend of his in town by the piazza who had uh, spaces that he rented to people. He said, you can you can come here and watch and you can go there and, you know, just try it out. Hmm. You know, try carving yourself, which is what I did. And I ended up renting an apartment, actually, from the fellow who ran the studio where I carved. And then I found out about the place to buy tools and which tools I needed, you know, a few at a time, little by little. And so I loved learning it. And I learned the language. I became fluent in Italian because I worked all the time with people who spoke no English. I mm. mean, that's the way you learn language, I found out. I said stupid things. But again, they were very, very kind. I got used the wrong words for things and embarrassed myself a few times, but, but they were very kind. And then I, about six months after I went back, Franco took me one day to meet Enzo Pasquini, who does it all. He does. So the way they make carved marble sculptures, for example, a Pietà, is there's, there's specialists. It's a realist sort of, you know, the most amazing craftsman's assembly line you can imagine. So there's the guy who proves the block, shaves off, gets rid of all the the surface scale, you could call it, stuff that, that is not sound on the surface. And then after he does that, he checks it to make sure that the sculpture that they want to carve will fit inside that thing. And mm-hmm. it's a it's it's a very specialized thing to determine that, and everything depends on it. Because mm-hmm. they don't want to get a couple of weeks into the job and find out there isn't room for that elbow or something. So there's that specialist. And then the next specialist is this modellatore who uses a, a croce, uh, uses specialized tools to basically transfer the sculpture from the plaster cast to the marble block. And the next stage is finishing, and there's three or four specialists in finishing. And one of them does, you know, hair and skin stuff, faces, and and he's called a scultore. And then there's the ornatista who does the lettering and the fruit and flowers and all the stuff. And then I can't remember the word for the guy who does fabric, but I'll tell you, at Cervietti Studio, Francesco, he uh, could not only make marble look like cloth, he could make it look like satin or wool or lace mm-hmm. or whatever, silk. He was brilliant. They were all so good. It was a great honor, uh, privilege to be able to watch them work. So during those three months, uh, you weren't able to work yourself, right? Um, I did. Oh, you did? Okay. I did because I rent Claudio was his name, and he owned, okay. his family owned a big building right next to the gate on the left side of the gate uh, into the piazza. And so he had this huge space. He lived upstairs, mm-hmm. and there was a courtyard. He had stands set up in airlines, and he rented space to uh, people who wanted to carve on their own. Mm-hmm. There was an instruction there. Although if you really had a problem, you know, there's somebody who could help you out. And they helped each other out, the people who carved there. How, how were you paying for all this? When Doug died, he left me some part of his estate. Oh, okay. All right. Not the house, but he had he had investments. Okay. But basically what I lived on was when I was in my my good friend Charlotte Danley, who was extremely wealthy, as I told you, from Berkshire Hathaway. Mm-hmm. And she was a great supporter of the arts, and she had started a foundation called Phoenix Foundation. And she gave grants sometimes. Oh, and okay. so what she gave me was typically what she gave, because she had many, many hundreds of shares, A shares of Berkshire Hathaway. Mm-hmm. At the time, she gave me a share, and it was worth about 13000 mm-hmm. Um So that was my grant. And basically, the 
it was given to pursue, to develop my skills and knowledge and talent, ability in sculpture in whatever direction I thought was important. So that was my basic funding for going to Italy. But one of the reasons I had to come back, just jumping ahead a little bit, was financial. Because I was not selling my work in Italy. I was spending money, even at my frugal rate. Still, you can't go on forever Mm -hmm. spending money and not making money. And I had set up a system before I left for the foundry to deliver bronzes to people who bought them thinking that I could live in Italy and still sell my work in the States. But that didn't work out because the second bronze that was delivered, there were complaints about the quality mm-hmm. of it. And I just, yeah. to me, that that was the scariest thing about the arrangement was that I didn't look at it yeah. and uh, that's a approve it before it went out. Normal complaint with foundries is it's economically not really in their interest to take as much time as the artist would take. Right. With it. And that's then, one of the reasons you guys had your own foundry and, right. and finished everything yourselves is yeah. you could do it exactly the way you wanted as the artist. Now, let's just say, you know, the next four years, what what's kind of going on in Italy when you're over there? Okay, so I was carving at Claudio's place. I was learning. And then when I went back, I went back to the same situation, except then, like I said, a few months, like maybe four months later, Franco took me to meet Enzo Pasquini, who mm-hmm. had his own studio yeah. uh, on the other side of town. And Enzo and I just hit it off perfectly. We were just soulmates, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, just great friends. Uh, He's one of the noblest human beings I ever met Mm -hmm. and the greatest carver. I mean, everybody said, this is what they said about Enzo. If you wonder if something, because something is so complex or delicate or difficult, if you wonder if it can be carved into marble, go ask Enzo. Mm -hmm. And if he says it can't be, then it really can't be. He's like the ultimate, you know, because he could do things that nobody else could do. And I saw that during my time with him. I was able to carve with him in his studio for two years. Hmm. It was not just a great learning experience. It was a joy because he, the work that he does, but also his smile, you know, well, you've seen the photographs of Mm -hmm. him, right? Mm -hmm. He just had this, he was a happy man. He started his apprenticeship when he was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. He finished high school, but he'd go after school. Mm And work through his apprenticeship. It's a five-year apprenticeship to be a carver. One of the things, Enzo worked by himself because, although he worked with Cervietti Studio on a lot of projects, but he worked by himself because he did all of it from beginning to end. He did the checking the block. He did the the, the pointing up, which is smodellatore, the, the, the roughing out the block with points. And he did the most exquisite carving. You know, I have that rose that mm-hmm. he carved for me. Yeah. and. And he just did the most delicate work. And he had this relationship with marble where he knew how to get it to the... Like he would carve a rose petal so thin that the light was just glowing through it. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't break. He knew what the limits were and he'd push it right to the limit. He had... He was like a... I don't know, a lover. He said, Il marmo e me e me siamo amici. That means the marble and I were friends. Mm -hmm. And I would say, anche amanti. And that means also lovers. And he just smiled. And it was like that. He just knew. It was like caressing them. He just knew. He could scrape grain by grain to get whatever he wanted out of that material. He was a master, truly a master. And um, and a wonderful, wonderful guy, man, friend. What uh, brought you out of Italy? I think it was mostly financial. Okay. 
um, because actually I thought I would stay forever. And then, but I, but you know, I've always looked down the road financially, like how long things are, maybe the old accounting background. I look at what I've got, what it's going to cost to live and how long it's going to last. And I didn't want to like end up broke in Italy. Mm-hmm. So actually I tried, I did make efforts to sell my, get my work into galleries in Italy. And what I ran into was bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Because I'm a straniera, they you have to jump through all kinds of hoops and get green card, residenza, permissions mm-hmm. to put your work in a gallery, <laughs> um, and letters from everybody you know in the United States and in Italy. And Enea tried to help me on that too. He sent me to a couple of galleries in Milan and one in Florence that he had connections. He knew the owners and and they liked my work, but they had to have all this paperwork mm-hmm. to be able to put it in their gallery. So. Mm-hmm. That was probably the biggest reason. So when you come back to the States in 98, let's say, are you thinking you're going to stay in the States or are you thinking you're going to make some money in the States and then head back to Italy? I thought that I was going to set up a marble studio in America and mm-hmm. continue carving. Mm, okay. I had no intention of quitting carving. That was kind of, uh, well, I could say ignorance, you know, lack of experience. Everything is set up for carving marble over there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a neighborhood GRU. A GRU is a cross between a, a forklift and a crane. Mm-hmm. And there's one in every neighborhood. You just go and knock on the door of the GRU guy, you know, and say, I need you to move some marble for me. Well, there's nothing like that mm-hmm. here, of course, or anywhere that I know of in the States. So I would have had to buy some very expensive equipment to be able to operate. Everything that was easy over there was hard here. Mm-hmm. And like, I had seen cracks develop in pieces that would just break your heart and they knew how to fix them Mm -hmm. and there's nobody here that i can call Mm -hmm. and say help me fix this and that happened to the piece i was working on and that kind of broke my heart Mm -hmm. so that turned out to be not a feasible idea (laughs) when you came back but i always thought i'd go back to to answer your question i always when i packed up and left italy i don't know if i was reaping outside but i certainly was inside i always thought i would go back to live there Mm -hmm. I still sometimes wonder if I will. <laughs> when you came back, where did you live at first? Oh, I went back, back to, to my, the house on San Juan Island. Doug's house. Mm-hmm. Doug's okay. house, yeah. That was still my home and, at that time, even though... And it, you brought marble with you at that point? I did. It was a container, a 20-ton container that yeah. came over on a ship. Yeah. <laughs> um, and did you know Paul at that point? I did. So that was another reason why. I moved back, I think. I had had a few flings in Italy, but I had not... I was pretty much on my own. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a significant relationship. Although I had friends and I had wonderful work, I just happened to meet Paul and uh, became very fond of him very quickly. We met at the Lime Kiln Cafe. I told you before that I I came back one winter, and so I had just gone to the wake for the father of uh, my best friend, Sue Evans, in Friday Harbor. And I was on my way home and stopped in at Lime Kiln Cafe because the executive chef there was a good friend of mine, Bill Shaw, still is. And so I thought, well, I'll just stop in and have a glass of wine because the house was empty. You know, I didn't want to rush home. And so Bill was there. Anyway, we were sitting there having a glass of wine and laughing and talking. And then this blue-eyed elf stuck his head in the door and and they knew him. And they said, hey, Captain, come on in. We got somebody for you to meet, to introduce you to. And so he came in and we met and started talking. And he was a an adventurer. Mm-hmm. And he, underst- he got it. He understood 
understood. Like at one point I was telling him about Italy. He loved that I was an artist, that I was in Italy. It turns out that he's loved art all of his life. Mm. Who knew? He was a fisherman most yeah. of his life. But he loved art and always thought he wanted to try sculpture and painting. But also he just loved traveling and adventure. So you know what he's yeah. like. So we ended up closing the place. I mean, literally, we had a glass of wine and then we had dinner and then we had another glass of wine and they were ready to close. And uh, they kind of stood there and smiled at us. Oh, I guess we better leave, you know. <laughs> at one point when I was talking about Italy, he said, it must be a great feeling when you walk up that street and reach in your bag and pull out the key to your own home in Italy. How many people would say that? Mm -hmm. And that just gave me goosebumps because mm -hmm. I thought, what an insight. Yeah, it feels great. He knows about that. So I was still living in Italy when I met Paul, but mm -hmm. we kind of did fall in love. And then I went back to Italy and he went back. Uh, he worked at Roche for a few months and then went back up north to do the fishing season in Alaska. He and Gail, his ex-wife, had been, his kids were grown up and his he and his ex-wife had been divorced for, I don't know, five or six years. A little background on Paul. Um, so he basically made a livelihood in, in Alaska up in Pelican, you know, raised a family up there, uh, basically fishing, and uh, had lots of adventures during fishing season, and then the other part of the year going to Hawaii and living it up. And at a certain point, he went down to Mexico, was living down there, having adventures, and then uh, built his, his own full home down there. In the jungle. In the jungle yeah. next to the ocean. Uh, yeah. And uh, near... Uh, Sayulita. Sayulita, which is... It's about 45 minutes north of Puerto Vallarta. Yeah. So he hadn't been to Italy. I hadn't been to Mexico. Right. So what we did basically... But was you're a couple of adventurers. We introduced each other to our places, our adventures. And he ended up falling absolutely in love with Italy. Mm -hmm. In fact, sometimes I my joke is that I think you love Italy more than I do, you know. And he always wants to go back. And There's a romantic thing about a sea captain and mm. somebody who has a boat, knows what they're doing, and can take you up and down the inside oh. passage. And it's a very romantic adventure. It really was. The first time that I went to Alaska, see, I'd never been to Alaska before. I'd never been to Mexico before. But he had the best in both places, the best of it. First time I went up, I literally flew from Milan, Italy, to Seattle, and then caught a flight up to Juneau. When I got off the plane at Gustavus, there was nobody there. And I thought, oh, no, I'm in Alaska. <laughs> it was actually scarier than going to, to Italy in a way. And then they, they got there and they took me down to the dock. And that was the first time I saw Demijohn, his mm -hmm. boat. I fancied Paul up to that point. When I saw the boat, I have to say that it really pushed me over the edge. Because I'd always wanted to be on the sea. I'd always loved boats in the it was sea. A substantial boat. Substantial um, boat. How, how long was it roughly? It's fifty-three foot Kettrig motor sailor that he had built for fishing, for right. commercial fishing. Yeah. Instead of a stateroom in the back, it was a a big ice hold for yeah. icing salmon. And uh, so I went fishing with him for a couple of years. Uh, I mean, in the summers on yeah. that boat and. Great adventures. It was. It was. And so then we, we cruised out of there and spent the first night in Idaho Inlet. In the morning, there were young juvenile orca whales playing around the boat. You know, it was it, it was his neighborhood. He showed me every nook and cranny of it. And we caught, I mean, the biggest salmon. I'd, ever, I'd never even dreamed of such fish. There were just so many in halibut. And we must have brought three or 400 pounds of fish back with us in fish boxes that mm. summer, back when you could. Oh. <laughs> Those days are gone. But anyway... So what happened was I was going back and forth. Mm -hmm. In that year, 98, I flew back and forth a few times. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I was going to have to make a decision. 
Uh, I kind of knew that, saw the writing on the wall for a year or so before that, but I realized that I was going to have to make a choice between living full-time in Italy or living full-time in the States. And so at that time, there was no way Paul could come and live in Italy because he made his living in America, you mm-hmm. know. We were not together most of for most of a year, and we'd send faxes back when there were faxes, you know, faxes back and forth, mm-hmm. and once in a while, a phone call uh, from a payphone in the piazza, <laughs> and we always had to arrange the time for that so that, you know, we could reach each other. It was very difficult communication. Mm-hmm. So, so that was part of the, what went into my decision. The financial aspect was another part. So I made the decision to move my life mm-hmm. back to the States. Well, because I had to resume making a living, basically, before I went through all the money. And I had galleries that wanted my work. I mean, if I came back, and, and it was true, when I came back, I got everything rolling again. The other thing is, I really got hooked on the Mexico adventure, mm-hmm. because it was like a dream of tropical paradise. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. And I remember the first time I went, it was with him, it was in the winter. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, when it's cold and dark up north, or also, by the way, in in Tuscany, it's cold and dark mm-hmm. in the winter. It's like this somewhere in the world. I remember thinking that, oh, this is real. You know, this is a reality that somewhere it's like this. You don't have to live in the dark gloom. And I love the colors. I love the warmth. I don't, by the way, love Mexico, the, the heat in the summer. I can't take that. But in the winter, it's just perfect. Mm-hmm. So, But I also love the jungle. And I didn't think I would because mm-hmm. I hate steamy, buggy places. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be like that, but it's not. It's a called a, it's a zone, climate zone called dry jungle. And they get all their rain from June to September. Mm-hmm. So in the winter, it's dry, but it looks like jungle. Mm-hmm. And there was this exquisite beach. I mean, pristine small beach and hardly anybody ever went there. It was a small piece of property on a hillside and he excavated a flat spot for a casita Hmm. with pick and shovel. You know, that's Paul. (laughs) I have a photograph of him with pick and shovel. Mm -hmm. And the first time I went there, there was just one wall, no floor, no roof. There was the front wall with the most perfect, graceful arches in it. And I thought, I want to be part of this. Mm -hmm. So, So there was that. That was another reason why I brought my life back from Italy. I think... Sounds like a good reason to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I... It's more of life's adventure. Right. And one thing I wanted to mention too, because it was a very tearful goodbye between Enzo and I. And he said, Christina, I know that if you had found love, a partner, a family, and a place with a garden and fruit trees and a big kitchen, that you would stay forever here. And I said, yeah, that's true. And that's true. And so that was a big piece of it, is I didn't find that. And you know where I found it? Right here. Everything that that your red-blooded Tuscan would want in life is right here. Our little farm here in Shelton. Mm -hmm. Family, gardens, fruit trees, a big studio, watching children, babies grow Mm -hmm. up. That's like their dream of heaven, big kitchen, you know? I mean, it's... And so you never know. It taught me a big lesson that maybe it doesn't happen. If you have a picture in your head of how you want to live, it might not happen in the place that you thought it would, but keep looking. (laughs) So, and of course, when I bought this place, there was nobody else here, but they came. (laughs) Yeah. So we're actually getting into current times Mm. uh, here. When did you buy this place? I bought this place in 2001. Right. I remember talking to you when the the towers fell, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, we, gosh. We got in contact with each other, and I think yeah. 
you were here. I was. Oh yeah, because yeah. it was June. Right. It was two thousand June of two thousand one. In fact, my sister and her then husband had come up to visit to see my place that I bought. And Sue and I were sitting well on this cement pad. We were sitting having our mugs of coffee in the morning. And of course, the place had like everything had to be done at that point. It was. I think I had mowed the weeds and maybe put a new roof on. I'm not sure, but it, well, this place you know. had been a, a foreclosure, and um, yeah. it was selling for. Like sixty thousand or something. When I first looked at it, they were asking eighty nine thousand. They'd come down to that, and I made an offer, a lowball offer of sixty, and they came back with sixty five. And I <laughs> thought for five minutes and said, "Okay, <laughs> I know, amazing." Like my sister when she came up to look at it that first time, and I told her what I got it for. She said, "You can't buy a driveway in <laughs> Southern California for that," yeah. you know. And that's true. And it's a beautiful. I bought it because. I thought it was a beautiful piece of property. With a lot of potential. With a lot of potential. Yeah. I love the lay of the land, the house up on a hill and mm-hmm. the barn down below, you know, and that nice gentle yeah. hill there. And it just had a lot of possibilities and a lot of studio space. That's mostly why. But it was it was a real mess. And that was, was one of the reasons yeah. it was a foreclosure for so long right. that didn't sell. Is the house it was a wreck. is not really your standard house. It's more like a pole barn that has had rooms built under it. It doesn't have the look <laughs> of like a nice, quaint, right. standard house kind it of It doesn't thing. have nothing standard about it. That's um, true. And so it probably just turned a lot of people off. Well, for example, the kitchen had a low ceiling yeah. that was plywood painted yellow with a fluorescent light. shop light yeah. for lighting. And, and it had barn stairs. Remember that? Yeah. Had barn stairs, which are very steep. Horrible green linoleum from... Oh, my gosh. It must have been like... It felt like... It was green and black. The dark 70s or something. I know. I know. <laughs> and it was all tearing up. And I remember I'd use mop and glow to try and make it look um, as good as it could. But And then the property was just totally overgrown. And there was yeah. um, oil drums and cars. Oh, gosh. And, oh, and 210... He, he basically used it as a dumping ground. 210 tires. We've, we right. found them. We went all over the property and just rolled them into one pile. And a truck so, came in. There's a off. tremendous amount of work that went into. There were wrecked cars and wrecked trucks. Oh. this place. He okay. was proud of the fact that he'd never been to the dump in 20 years. Right. The guy who owned he it. He had a dump. Hey, this was it, um, his landfill. So that's how you get into this different way of living for you, really. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is on your own, without a family, you decided for your own sake to put down some roots. And it's a pretty different way of living from how you had been living. Right. Another thing that I learned about recognizing what you need, because we we do have illusions, especially me, I'm a romantic, you know, and so I have a visual idea of what my partner or my home is going to, what it looked like or where it's going to be or something. So I never heard of Shelton before, except some people opened a bronze foundry here. Mm. And it was the closest one when I lived on San Juan Island. I had been going to Portland. So I was willing to try any place closer. So that's what first brought me out to this area. So anyway, I tried out the foundry. They weren't very good, but they were, you know, I, I babysat everything they did for me. So it, it was okay. And I thought, well, gosh. And then I had a commission. I forget what it was, but I needed space. It was a big enough commission that I needed. I didn't want to do it up on San Juan Island and have to transport everything down to the foundry. So Paul said, 
well, look for a shop building or something that you can rent short term to do the work in close to the foundry there in Shelton. That's what it all started as. So I started, I was looking for that and I stumbled upon this place. I went all through it because I could get in. It was open and and I thought, oh no, this is like too much work. This is awful. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, geez, but look at all the space. <laughs> and I came a few times and the place kind of grew. I started seeing the possibilities. And you know what? I had a list. I knew I had to move away from the White Point house. Mm -hmm. I needed a place with space for all my stuff. Mm -hmm. So I had made a list. This is before I stumbled upon this place. I'd made a list of what I need. So I'm looking at this place as decrepit as it was in a way when I first... And I came out on a sunny day and I heard the birds singing and the ocean and the breeze, you know, sounding like ocean in the trees. I pulled out that list and I looked at the list and I'll be damned if everything wasn't here. Mm-hmm. everything on the list was here. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't realized that because I had this vision in my head, you know, like an illusion of how, where or how it was going to be or something. Like it was going to be perfect, right? You walk in, well, I couldn't afford it if it was perfect. But everything that I had on my list was here. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. And that's what kind of kicked me over the hurdles. I made an offer and I was told that there was, somebody had already made an offer on it and it was off the market. And you know what? I breathed a sigh of relief. Like, oh, because I thought I was making a great big leap. Mm-hmm. And then the realtor called me about a week later and said, it's back on the market because the guy's financing fell through. Hmm. Most of what was left of that amazing gift from Charlotte, the Berkshire Hathaway share, I was able to make big down payment. So that's how I got it. Hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's quite a shift. And uh, yeah. so you are here. And then a couple of years later, Tanya and I show up. Yeah. Um, so in 2003, we come up because we'd reached a point, we were down in Los Angeles, we had reached a point where we had decided that we wanted to have kids, but we didn't want to have kids in the city or in Los Angeles. Smart especially. choice. Yeah. We were looking at places like Montana or Wyoming, oh. or, and uh, and then you invited us up to visit and, you know, take a look at the place. <laughs> we visited and we were just like, wow, this could be it. I think we had visited in the dead of winter too. So and it was, it was a, like, I remember it was a frozen February fog, February March day. Or, yeah. And everybody around here knows what a frozen fog February it's, day it's is like. terrible here in It was like everything was dead. Everything was gray. It was cold and clammy and damp and ugh. But compared with Los Angeles, <laughs> we're like, wow, we're... We're in nature. We're in the woods. We're, you know, we could actually make this happen. And one of the things I want to interject that I remember well that made me smile and think, boy, I might see more of you guys, is when you went and, because we went walking around the property, and you went out by yourself and you were exploring and you said, this would be a great place for kids to grow up. Mm -hmm. Because there had been those woods in Wilsonville, you know, Mm -hmm. and you knew about playing in the woods, kids and forts and trees and and stuff. And you found all these little little niches, you know, these little nooks and crannies, because it is quite, it's like our own private little forest here, you know, as Cody knows well, filming is. We can go into more stuff, but the big picture is uh, we we have the kids pretty much right away. And then um, about a year and a half after Cody was born, um, our daughter Tatiana is born and now they're Tatiana's 17 and Cody Uh, is 18. Yeah. And I want to thank you, well, for enriching my life in many ways, but thanks for letting me be in a situation where I can watch them grow up from the day they were born, basically. It's been a joy. Yeah. 
It's been just fantastic. And they are they are awesome, wonderful people. So that's how it worked out. You were gonna, you guys decided you wanted to move nearby, move up here and live, you know, in this area. And I said, "Well, I have lots of room here. Why don't you just unload your moving van here and mm-hmm. and then find your, you know, until you get settled, you can store your stuff here." And mm-hmm. It was a great big sprawling weird house, and so we just split it into two houses. And, yeah, and yeah. then we hired the contractor who basically uh, redesigned things so that we could have our own separate right. um, access and everything. You know, it was somewhat expensive, but it was totally worth it because over the next twenty years, uh, we've we've been able to have a life over here. So. Yeah, and I've had really good neighbors. And yeah, us too. And one thing I love about it is all of us kind of like informal socializing. I like socializing with family, with people I like, but I don't want to have to like get dressed and drive a long way and, you know, schedule and make a big deal. But here it's like, well, you guys want to come over for spaghetti or or let's cook some hot dogs on the deck. And, you know, it's just so easy. It's spur of the moment stuff. Informal. My favorite kind of socializing. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) No expectations. The easy kind. Right, right. Friendly fun. Yep. And you got to go to Italy. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I was working as an investment advisor, and that was kind of a bridge job for paying expenses and stuff when we got out here, uh, especially when Tanya got pregnant right away. But then we figured out a way that could help with marketing your stuff and help with that sort of thing. We did a number of <laughs> things together, art fairs. and But one of the things towards uh, the end of that, before I started working for a casino. Poker dealer. <laughs> uh, well, first in the pit, dealing craps and that oh, sort yeah, of thing. Right. While well, I also had a... Two-year-old and a zero-year-old and <laughs> stressful time. But before going into the casino, we uh, had students that we took over to Italy and we watched them and took them on tours of both Italy and marble carving studios in Pietrasanta. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a month-long workshop. We taught figure and portrait for three weeks of that. That's right. And then we took, I think it was about eight days and toured around yeah. uh, to see all the great art that must Florence be seen. And Venice and Rome. Rome. We started out in Rome usually. Right. And oh dear, yes, boy, what a brave rabbit you were. So Eric brought brought a whole bunch of stuff over for the workshop. I, I don't speak a word of Italian. He doesn't speak Italian. So I come through the airport and I'm carrying like way too much, uh, like armatures, bags and bags. And he find, had to find his way up to Pietrasanta on the train yeah. with all this stuff. Oh, dear. Um, I remember coming out of the airport with these. It felt like six huge bags. And I was going up this escalator. Oh, and um, there were people behind me. And, and I just lost it. I, I lost my grip. I couldn't hold on. <gasps> and they, they tumbled down the escalator and oh, just no. splayed all across oh, the no. floor. And everybody's looking at me. And by this time, I had gotten a cold, too. And I was hardly able to breathe. And, and um, you'd just gotten off a long flight. A long too. flight. And I was just like, oh, man. Yeah, but he made it. I made it. Because he always does. He made it. And and was it you that called it herding cats when we were doing the, <laughs> the touring, taking the students around? So these are adults. Trying to keep track of people. These are basically adults who don't speak Italian, and some of them have never been uh, in a foreign country before. But they are looking at everything, and being adults, they feel, you know, they're sort of wandering off, right? And, but and they're our responsibility. They are our responsibility <laughs> because they are our students in a foreign country, uh, and... 
And it was so it they was go off and do their own thing, and intense. we're just like, wait, stay in one group. <laughs> it was intense sometimes. Because if, if we lose somebody, <laughs> we don't know how to find them. Exactly, anymore. I was terrified of actually losing somebody because they wouldn't know how to find me, and I wouldn't know how to find them. For me, it was a way to make money, but also it was a way to go back to keep going back to Italy mm-hmm. because I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't quite give it up. It's not that I've given. I always want to go back to Italy, but you know, I have such a good life here. Mm-hmm. I really am content. Sono contenta, which is you know the Italian way of saying I'm happy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm okay. I'm good. I really have everything here that I like to do in life. And if you, you save up money, then you can always travel That's you know, right. when you want to. That's right. You don't have to be living But I have home. to have a home base right. where everything is set up. And, you know, and the extra great plus is I, my family's here, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. this is home. Yeah. Yeah. I um, guess we're up to now. Yeah. I, I don't, <laughs> we did it. So we might think of things that we want to talk about in the future about the past, whatever, 20 years. But if we don't, if this is it, I... Appreciate your time and uh, so I have for, one question. Thanks for bringing me on the journey. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for thanks for uh, coming along. That was <laughs> so interesting. And my only uh, question is, when can we all get together and play poker again? <laughs> we always have so much fun when we do that. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody has time anymore. Yeah, I, understand that. yeah. I don't. Know. I understand. The kids don't. Yeah, I know. I know. It'd be nice though. Maybe in I the know. future sometime. <laughs> well, you know what? Someday when they need a break from their busy lives, they might want to just come and hang out. And uh-huh. they, and everything they do, their busyness will be somewhere else. And when they come here, they just kick back and, hey, let's play poker or whatever, Monopoly. You know, yeah. we used to play games and have a lot of fun. But it, now it's a different kind of fun, isn't it? You're making, helping Cody make films. Well, and, I would not say it's fun, wow. but uh, it's uh, it's important, you know, launching the kids basically yeah. over the next year. So it's it's a critical period for, for yeah. what they want to do. So it's, it's worth doing. Interesting to watch new lives unfolding. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. See you later. Thanks for joining us in discussing my mom's later, greater adventures. Join us on the next episode when my mom and I focus more specifically on lifesaver themes, such as how our perspective changes as we age, discussion of our core self, learning from pain, expressing love, dying with dignity, defending against those who belittle our, quote, fanciful motivations, doing what you want as a danger to society. What? Making the tapestry of your life beautiful for your own appreciation of it. This and much more next time on the Lifesaver Podcast.